Good evening. You know, someone has said that life can be summed up in the following steps. Spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and wills. The spills come in our infancy. The drills come in our school age years. The thrills come in our youth. The bills come when we get married. The pills come, or the ills, I should say, as we get older. The pills come when sickness and old age sends us consistently to the pharmacy. And wills, of course, when we die. That's it. That is a proper summation of life, at least according to one person. And it just reiterates something that we already know and something that we have heard a trillion times, and that is, life is short. Now, you can respond to this knowledge in one of two ways. You can respond to life is short with the words, then live it up while you can. It's the whole eat, drink, and be merry mentality for tomorrow you die, right? You have as much fun as humanly possible because you only live once. And of course, fun is typically associated with some sort of immorality. Living life to your fullest means filling your life with things that typically leave you empty. Or you can respond to the idea of life is short with, therefore, glorify God. It's the recognition that everything I have comes from God, including time. And how much longer do I have? Will it be uh, that I die when I'm 70 or 80 or 100? Who knows? Well, God does. And in Psalm 139, in verse 16, it reads, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So my future rests solely in the hands of an almighty God. And therefore, I heed the words of Paul who wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. When I was in high school, Garth Brooks released a heartfelt song entitled, If Tomorrow Never Comes. A portion of that song reads like this. It says, If tomorrow never comes... Will she know how much I loved her? Did I try in every way to show her every day that she's my only one? And if my time on earth were through and she must face this world without me, is the love I gave her in the past going to be enough to last if tomorrow never comes? Now, this was Garth's first country love song, and he pitched it to a few songwriters, but he had trouble finding anyone who could take his sentiment and put it to lyrics and music until finally he came across a guy named Kent Blazy, who is the one responsible for writing this heartfelt song. And the song isn't about Garth's wife or significant other, as many people have thought. It's actually about the love of a father for his daughter, of which Garth has three. The first verse states, Sometimes late at night, I lie awake and watch her sleeping. She's lost in peaceful dreams, so I turn out the lights and lay there in the dark. And the thought crosses my mind, if I never wake up in the morning, would she ever doubt the way I feel about her in my heart? So Garth Brooks ponders the question, if I were to die today, would my little girl have any doubt as to how much I love her? Would my love linger? And you know, these are great questions to ponder from a spiritual perspective as well. Will my faith linger when I'm gone? Am I glorifying God today just in case tomorrow never comes? Does God know how much I love Him? Do others know how much I love Him? 
Or am I racing through life at breakneck speed, assuming that there's plenty of time to do spiritual things? Read with me in James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So how many of you have plans for supper tonight? Where are you going to go? Probably going to maybe go and grab something to eat and bring it home. Maybe uh, you're going to cook something, but uh, let me ask you, are you sure about all that? How many of you have plans for a vacation this summer? Are you sure? How many of you have plans to retire and to move to a certain place, maybe get a spot on the lake and just relax and live out your last days? Are you sure about that? You see, in all of these plans, we're assuming something. We're assuming that there will be a tomorrow, and that can be a dangerous assumption. Look, look at the truth being delivered by James in the passage we just read. James gives a concise example of a successful businessman. He says, this man had a plan. He says, today or tomorrow, he was going to travel. He has a place in mind. He is going to such and such a city, spend a year there and do business. He intends to make a profit. I mean, why else would you make plans and go to a city and try to uh, you know, do business if you weren't going to intend to make some money? So there's nothing wrong with any of this. It's a good plan. Thinking ahead is good. Having a plan or a goal is worthwhile. Success isn't wrong. You show me a businessman that doesn't have a plan or doesn't make any money, and I'll show you a failed businessman. However, what's wrong with this scenario is that this businessman assumes that his life is of his own doing, that he is the master of his own fate. A key phrase in all of this is, come now, you who say. That's an important clue. This man is an arrogant vapor. He's bragging about his plans to those around him, and nothing's going to stop him. He seems to be a control freak, presuming that he can control his future, presuming that he cannot fail, and presuming his own success. And all these presumptions point to the man's foolishness. He was foolish. Why? Well, because he left God out of his planning. I think we forget sometimes how fragile life can be and sometimes we are sent a sobering reminder that comes in the form of a car crash or a stray bullet or an unexpected heart attack or a stroke or devastating diagnosis our whole world can change in an instant with one phone call one unforeseen mishap on a long enough timeline the survival rate drops to zero for everyone. One out of one people die. And that is why James says, don't get too comfortable in your planning. You're not here very long. In fact, James describes our lives as a vapor and how brief is a vapor. You ever, uh, you ever breathe on the window glass in your car and try to write your name? You better do it quickly because that, that vapor disappears very fast. It's kind of like Easter candy. It's here one minute and gone the next, right? Even if you live to be a hundred, your lifespan is nothing more than a breath on the window of eternity. It's a vapor that begins to disappear the moment that you're born. 
There's a man by the name of Dave Freeman who wrote a book entitled 100 Things to Do Before You Die. And it's a travel guide and a bucket list all in one. A quote from the book states, This life is a short journey. How can you make sure you fill it with the most fun and that you visit all the coolest places on earth before you pack those bags for the very last time? And among the recommended things that Freeman places in his book are Mardi Gras in New Orleans, Oktoberfest in Germany, and Running with the Bulls in Spain. Now, I have not looked at the book. I've not participated in any of these things that he's mentioned, but I guess... I guess what Dave Freeman was banking on when he wrote this book is you better make the most of your time because we don't have a lot of it. And it's really kind of interesting because Dave Freeman, the author of this book, A Hundred Things to Do Before You Die, died in a freak accident at the age of 47. A man who wrote a book about making the most of your time on earth dies at just 47 years of age. And that's typically our solution to the conundrum, right? There is no shortage of books and blogs and mottos and sermons declaring the truth that life is short, tomorrow is not guaranteed, and how do we typically respond to this? Well, through ambitious action. We hear it all the time, life is short, play hard, don't waste a single minute, make it count. And I don't disagree with any of those sentiments, at least not in principle. It's not wrong to make the connection between the brevity of life and a call to urgency or diligence. That's necessary. Plus, it's actually scriptural. But I do find it interesting that when scripture mentions the brevity of life, it often emphasizes something quite different than a call to ambitious action. In response to the businessman's arrogant approach to life, James asked the question, what is your life? And we, as the modern-day church, have answered that question, right? What is your life? Well, it's about glorifying God. Therefore, you better get busy. You better start doing. We, we can't help ourselves. We can't help but do. So we hear the phrase, life is short, and our reflexive response is, so do better. Work harder. Sacrifice. Your time is short, so you better get busy living or get busy dying. Serve, sacrifice, seek the lost. All good things, don't get me wrong. But it's worth noting that in James 4, 13 through 17, where we read from a moment ago, the author is rebuking the presumptuous businessman who is declaring precisely what we declare when we're hit with the reminder that life is short. Life is short, so I better start doing. Life is short, so I better not waste my opportunity. Life is short, so I need to step it up. But look at what James actually says. He says, your life is a vapor. Therefore, stop with the ambitious talk and start with acknowledging God. Stop making plans and recognize the fact that God is in control. Wake up to the reality that is only by God's blessing that you can do anything. You don't control tomorrow. Even the mentality that says, I can't waste my life can be arrogant boasting. And the reason why is because you do not, you do not know that you, you have a tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You know, it sounds so honorable and so virtuous, this idea that I'm maximizing my life, but such a mentality can actually be rather dishonorable. It can be a presumption considering that I may not have a life to maximize tomorrow. Maybe that's taking the thought a little too far, but hopefully you're picking up what I'm throwing down. My point is simply this, the presumptuous attitude of what I will do with my life is the exact mentality that the Holy Spirit is rebuking here in this segment in James' epistle. Your life is short. You do not, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Therefore, instead, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. James's exhortation is not, life is short, make the most of it. No, his exhortation is, life is short, therefore, humble yourself. Again, it's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to have hopes and dreams. It's not wrong to plan for the future. What's wrong is to presume that we are in control of it all. What's wrong is to never consider God in our planning. The right approach is to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. And I hear Christians say that a lot. I'm sure you have as well. If the Lord wills. I'll see you Sunday if the Lord wills. My grandfather used to say, Lord willing, and if the creek don't rise. The phrase, if the Lord wills, points us away from ourselves and toward God. In Acts chapter 18, we find Paul in Ephesus reasoning with the Jews. And he's about to leave when they ask him to stay a little longer. And I want you to notice what Paul says. He says, I will return to you again if God wills. That's the right mentality. Paul had it right. We make our plans, we set our schedule, but we leave it all in the hands of God. Paul says, I might come back, I want to come back, I intend to come back, but that's all up to God. It reminds me of another passage of Scripture, this one found in Proverbs 16, 9, and it reads, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is sovereign over our steps, a fact that the businessman in James chapter 4 foolishly ignored. I want to ask you, what do these two things have in common? That's right, it's a remote control and a steering wheel. What do these two things have in common? And I think the thing that they have in common is that both are a test to see whether or not you are a control freak. I mean, when you don't have the remote, does your blood pressure rise? Do you break out in a cold sweat? Does it bother you when you go to visit someone's house and they have the remote control and they're flipping through the channels and you're thinking to yourself, you just passed three good ball games. Why don't you stop on one of them? We like to be in control, especially of the TV, especially us guys. We want that remote control in our hand. What about the steering wheel? Are you someone that always has to be in the driver's seat? Does it drive you nuts to sit in the passenger seat or in the back seat while someone else drives? Do you insist that every time you go somewhere, you're the one that does the driving because you can't give up the steering wheel to someone else? We would love to have a remote control that we could press to control our lives or a steering wheel that helps us maneuver our lives down the smoothest terrain. It's hard for us to give up control. To some degree, I think we're probably all control freaks. And you may be saying, well, Chris, I, I, I don't care. I don't watch TV, so that doesn't apply to me, and I love to be chauffeured around. Okay, but I, I still would bet that in some way, shape, or form, you deal with anxiety from a lack of control. Just to let you know, here's, here's a list. Someone made up this list. I didn't make it up myself, but here's a list of the various types of control freaks. And I bet you can probably find yourself somewhere on this list. You have the micromanager. You have the perfectionist. You have the intimidator. You have the worry wart, you have the overthinker, the overplanner, the anti-planner, the manipulator, the opinionator. Point is that most of us, if not all of us, deal with control issues in our lives. We like to be in charge of certain things. We like to be in charge of our life, of our home, our job. We like to be behind the wheel. And if we're completely honest, we're not much different than the businessman that James speaks of in chapter 4 of his epistle. We don't purposely leave God out of the equation, but we get so used to being in control, we make foolish presumptions. And we think that tomorrow can't happen without me. 
1972, Jim Croce was a young, talented songwriter and singer who was becoming a star. He was also a young father who, whose heart was dedicated and devoted to his young son. Jim's budding musical career demanded that he stay away from home for extended periods of time, and he knew that his time was precious. He knew that he was missing out on valuable moments with his son. Jim expressed his parental longing in a touching song entitled Time in a Bottle, a portion of which reads like this, but there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. Jim Croce knew that the days were slipping by and that he was missing out on some vital moments with his young son. But he had even less time than he knew. Because on September the 21st, 1973, Jim Croce died in a plane crash just before his young son's second birthday. Jim Croce was only 30 years old. You know, the psalmist wrote, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What if I told you that today I am 17,234? You would look at me funny. You'd think, Chris, you look old, but you don't look that old. No, actually, that's how old I am. Tomorrow I'll be 17,235. I'm just doing what the Bible says. I'm numbering my days. Scripture doesn't tell me to add up my years. It tells me to keep track of my days. And why is that? Well, here's why I think Scripture tells me that. Because it reminds me that life is merely a vapor. That we are only here for a little while and then we vanish. Learning to number my days helps me to recognize the unnumbered days of God. Because God's days are without end. But my days are numbered. So instead of living for my tomorrow, I live for God's. My life has an eternal agenda. I want to leave you this evening with a question. And it's the question that James asks in James chapter 4. Here it is. What is your life? Folks, I'll tell you what it is. Your life is short. Therefore, get busy glorifying God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day. God, we pray that this pandemic will be over soon and that we can all be back together. We pray for all those who are dealing with this pandemic. We pray for all of those of our number who are, who are afflicted with other things. We pray, God, that we can be a light in this world, <coughs> excuse me, that we can help others understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We pray that we can be a people of hope. Help us to realize the brevity of our life and to live in such a way that glorifies you in all that we do. It's in your son's precious name we pray.